This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. First serve tennis sunscreen, a quality Australian-made sunscreen to protect those that love their tennis at sunblessunscreens.com.au and GLG Green Life Group, your open space specialists at glgcorp.com. The first serve, your home of tennis. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another big edition of the First Serve. It is your uh, home of tennis. Uh, Brett Phillips with you for another week. one 736 736 That is the number to call if you want to join in the tennis conversation tonight. You can put anything you like on the tennis agenda. You call. We'll put you on around our guests at, uh, to come tonight. The Tennis Direct text is available as well. 0433981116. That's also available for you. Tennis Direct, Australia's favourite online tennis store. They've got fast delivery, great prices, free delivery on orders over $150. You can visit their website direct as you're listening in tonight. TennisDirect.com.au First Serve listeners can get their 10% discount store-wide using the promo code FIRSTSERVE10. And Tennis Direct actually giving away a $150 voucher to our best caller for May. And for everyone that calls in, you will get the First Serve Tennis Sunscreen Pack, a sunscreen designed specifically for tennis at sunblessunscreens.com.au. You can order yours using the discount code SEN. Now, two Aussie mates win first up on their Return to the Tour, an African tennis story to share with you tonight. A follow-up to our two chats we had last week with Tennis Australia and Tennis Victoria, and a few other bits are certainly bubbling around. But we start tonight looking back at a big week of tennis in the Italian capital on the road to Roland Garros. The sensational Sfiontech is the new ruler in Rome, an outstanding performance against the former champion and former world number one. It was flawless, and this incredible young talent has taken another big step forward in this already impressive young career. It is a 10th title for Rafa in Rome. He draws level with Djokovic on 36 Masters trophies. Another fascinating chapter in this wonderful rivalry. The celebrations can begin for the Spaniards. Nadal is the champion at the Foro Italico. Uh, yes, what a moment it was for uh, Rafa, what a moment it was for Iga Sviontek. And I had the matchstick eyes after a big uh, weekend, but she played at a civilised time last night and it was over in the blink of an eye and then Rafa and Novak. We've been waiting for this instalment for a little while. It hasn't come as part of the clay court build-up to Roland Garros, but it came uh, last night in a big way. Let's welcome in esteemed uh, tennis commentator Nick Lester, who's been calling all the action, of course, being beamed in to be in sports uh, here in Australia. We love the tennis on a week-to-week basis. Nick, it's great to have you back on the show. 
Good to be here, Brett. Good to be here. Uh, Rafa, Clay, the month of May. It all just goes in the same sentence. It does, uh, although you have to say it was probably a relatively big week for him, wasn't it, in terms of not obviously having won a Masters 1000 on the European swing. That hasn't happened, I think, for six years. Only happened once in his career, Brett. So I think yesterday you kind of just felt, I certainly felt, in the third set. And, and, you know, there were times in the third where he just looked like he, for me, just wanted it a little bit more. And, you know, you, you sense, obviously, you know, you go back to the match, there was that big forehand on break point that Djokovic missed that probably was a turning point in the overall picture. But, you know, I mean, if you look at the draw, Brett, I think that was one of the toughest Masters 1000s that Rafa's ever had to win yeah. in terms of the way he negotiated it. You know, Sinner played great in the opener. Shapovalov obviously had him in a tough spot. Um, that was not an easy week for Rafa. Well, I want to go back to that Shepovalov match. And I'm a huge fan of Dennis. And I, I love watching him uh, every time he plays, uh, Nick. And here he is. He's a set and three love up. He's got Nadal on the ropes. Uh, he's got all the firepower uh, that we know that Dennis brings to the court. He had him on the ropes, but he just couldn't quite put him away. He left the door open. You've only got to leave the door just a little bit open for Rafa and uh, he'll make you pay. You know what, Brad, it's funny. We were sitting there actually commentating the match, and you, you're absolutely right, because you think at a set and three love, the 99.9% of players Shapovalov is playing, at that point, yeah. you make him a favourite. But there's one player you don't make him a favourite against, and that was Rafa. And he knew that, we knew that, and everybody else knew that. And I think that was the issue. And, you know, you just one, one miss allows Rafa back in. He got the break. It was 3-2. It was a very different story. But, you know, it was pretty quick last week in Rome. The conditions were warm, especially early part of the week, Brett. The balls were flying around. Chapovalov was serving well. Rafa had some issues with his serve earlier in the week as well, and I think that's been one of the issues of the clay court swing for him. The serve's not quite been firing, but uh, certainly in the third set yesterday... He found a good rhythm on serve and and, that, and everything else kind of flowed thereafter. So we've seen so many instalments of Djokovic and Nadal. I mean, there have just been so many memorable matches, Nick, across the journey, across all the surfaces of tennis. How would you sort of describe that battle yesterday in comparison to, you know, so many great matches that they've played? I thought it was up there. It wasn't a classic. Definitely wasn't a classic, Brad, I don't think. I, I'm not sure both players played as well as they can at the same time. You know, in terms of playing the peak of their powers at the same time, I think that was probably the issue. But, you know, when you've played each other as much as these guys have, Brett, there's no secrets. They both know what to do. It's, it's an evolving picture, you know, in terms of the way that, you know, it's a chess match in many ways. Both guys know what it takes to win. They know, you know, what's required, what they've got to do well. But you look at Rafa yesterday, you look at the change of height on the ball. Often, you know, the back end up the line he used a lot with a lot more height. Mm-hmm. Suddenly Djokovic is hitting the ball in a more awkward, awkward part you know, in terms of not being able to get in terms of the strike zone. So there were, you know, as I say, I, I didn't think yesterday was a classic, but I think when those two meet, you know, in terms of what's at stake and how many times they've played, I think they know each other so well. So, you know, there is that element that, you know, it was, it was always going to be very tactical. Um, but I think, you know, I think in the big picture, Brett, for, it was a, for me, it just felt like a, a match that, Rafa just kept the kept the ascendancy, kept the you know it's five in a row I think four in a row now on clay, it's yeah. five in a row in clay. So going into the French, I think that's exactly what he wanted. So that that was my next question. What, what's your takeaway, and what do we now look at as the script, if you like, for Roland Garros, considering that you know Djokovic, uh, you know to upstage Nadal is the biggest challenge in tennis on clay. Medvedev is technically two in the world, but as 
really stunk it up on the clay. Team is trying to get back to some rhythm. He's been one of the best performers in a couple of finals against Nadal in the last few years. Sitsi Passons Verev have grabbed a title on the clay in the last few weeks. Rublev, Federer's coming back in Geneva this week. The unknown of what Roger's going to produce. Berrettini lifts himself to another level after a, a tough start to the year with injury. Uh, Schwartzman rounds out the top 10. But what are, you, what are you reading into Roland Garros having now taken in all the build-up? I mean, the, the big question, I think, is how much we read into yesterday's match. Because if you look at the way, you know, you've got to remember Djokovic played five hours plus on Saturday. So there had to be that element, even though he said he wasn't tired. I just felt in the third, at times, and to be honest, I felt early in the second, that Djokovic was kind of just not, not ready to give up the ghost, but he did look as though he kind of had enough. So for me, I'm not entirely sure how much we read into yesterday going into the French unquestionably those two players are, the, are going to be the two to beat. The draw is going to be fascinating because you could, we could have a situation where we have you know, Nadal and Djokovic in the same half, which would seem to be somewhat of an anomaly given the fact that obviously Medvedev has won so, so few matches on the clay. Um, I, I, I think it's 55-45 Rafa going into the French, obviously given how many times he's won there, that has to be the case. Um, but just, I just look in Djokovic's eye yesterday when they shook hands. There was that smile. Yeah. To me, that almost said you know what? I'm where I want to be. I haven't won this match, but I'm where I want to be. I've made a dent in you today, and I feel like my game is where it's required to be going to the French. So I think it's very hard to call. You have to have Rafa a favourite, don't you, do. you, given how many times he's won there. It's, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, no but doubt. I'm telling you what, the Serb is not far away. No, and he was pretty happy with his fight. So he, he's up for the battle. There's no doubt about that. And uh, just from an Australian perspective, Milman went out uh, to Berrettini. He's been running hot. So we probably expected that result. Demon or disappointing uh, game against uh, Maggio, the Italian. But the rankings, you know, 23, 90 in the world. Sometimes the, the margins are uh, extremely small. A little shout-out. We always love to mention the doubles, uh, Nick, because these guys, Mikic and Pavic, and I watched the semi against our very own John Pierce and Michael Venus. That went down to the smallest of margins in two breakers. But these two guys have played eight finals this year and have won six of them. They've won all four Masters 1000s, and they had never played with each other. Two countrymen from Croatia. So I reckon they deserve a little bit of a uh, shout-out. And I need to ask you, Nick, about... My favourite on the women's side of the tour, and you know we're blessed with Ash Barty. We love watching Ash. We don't take it for granted that she's the world number one. Mm. But Iga Fiontek, I tell you what, mm. she is box office. Uh, devastating for Pliskova. A couple of bagels in the final last night, but uh, this girl is just pulsating. The brand of tennis, uh, now she's inside the top ten for the first time. She's an incredible player, Brett. And she, you know, one of the big features of her matches, Brett, and you look back through, we had some good data last week in terms of the way she approached it. One of the standout things with Sviontek, Brett, is how fast she starts matches, how yeah. quickly she starts matches. Yep. You look at how aggressively she plays, Brett, in terms of the first four or five games, her ground stroke speeds are somewhere between 5 and 10% up <laughs> right from the very first game, and they tend to come down. Now, that gives you an idea of where she's at going onto the court. In terms of her mindset, we know she works with a sports psychologist. She works with a data analyst, Brett. She's got a payroll of about four or five people on there yeah. who are employed to make her the best player she can be. And I think the fascinating thing with her, Brett, is that they're looking long-term. Even though she won the French last year, if you listen to the way she speaks and, and listen to her sports psychologist, everything is in the future. It's all about the long-term. It's all about dealing with going to the French as a defending champion and obviously having won in Rome. Uh, it's going to be her spirits are going to be lifted somewhat. But, you know, she is such a tough out on the clay, Brett. She moves 
so beautifully. I think the serve is going to be need something needs to improve on other surfaces because the serve obviously isn't quite so critical on a clay court in terms of getting three points. Yep. But I think once she, you know, her movement on a clay court, Brett, I think is almost second to none. It's phenomenal. I mean, she, yeah, you're right. She hits you between the eyes from the first ball. Uh, she is lighting it up and putting enormous pressure. There's no easing into a match for uh, uh, Igor Sviontek. So that would have been fascinating. I mean, Barty looked like she might have been on her way to another title against Coco Goff. 6-4-2-1 up the arm. She's taken the... Uh, the view of the bigger picture of the French, and hopefully she'll be right in the next couple of weeks. It would have been great to see Barty uh, Sviontek for a, a second time uh, this year. And Osaka, just a quick word on her. I mean, I, I'm seeing a lot of Naomi uh, Nick on social media. We know she's got endorsement deals galore. Mm. She's been at the Laureus Sports Awards as well. It's almost like she's just said, I'm no good on the clay. I'm just not even going to focus here at the moment. I mean, she, she said outwardly she feels still uncomfortable on the surface. And I think, you know, I think it will get better over time, Brett. I think we've seen this with players, haven't we? Medvedev's in the same boat right now, isn't he, on the men's side of things. It's just a total glass half-empty scenario. You know, he's going onto a clay court and actually saying, well, I can't play on this. But if you look at, there are lots of players, Brett, who, you know, Jess Begula is a good example, the American, who made the quarterfinals this week, the player who's not played a lot on clay yeah. and has said in the past she doesn't feel comfortable on it. But it's just made very small adaptations, very small, not much, because nowadays I think, you know, Dan Evans, the British number one, a great example, Brett, as well, a guy who, you know, on the face of it, never won a match on clay, but has felt more comfortable on the surface in terms of just playing his own game. Mm. And I think if a sucker just can just get the movement better, um, then obviously that's critical for her. But again, it's a mindset thing. You have to let the clay... You know, Shara Pover was a great example, wasn't it? Wasn't she? You know, who just refused to let the surface get the better of her. But for years, the movement was an issue. But once she was able to get the better of it and feel a bit more comfortable on it, she could dictate on her terms. And if Osaka can do that, I'm yep. not sure what's going to happen this spring, but maybe we're looking a bit further down the line, then she's going to have a chance. Plenty to look forward to. Nick, you've got us off to a great start tonight. Really appreciate your time. We'll uh, catch up, no doubt, as we get closer to Paris. Anytime, Brad. Nick Lester, esteemed ATP commentator across all the different outlets, ATP media, B in sports, so the world feed is doing it all. We'll come back. We've got a lot more to come on the first serve here on SEN. First serve tennis sunscreen, a quality Australian-made sunscreen to protect those that love their tennis at sunblessunscreens.com.au and GLG Green Life Group. Your open space specialists, providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia at glgcorp.com. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Off and running this week's edition of The First Serve. Brett Phillips uh, with you, one 736 736 uh, Very soon, the two Aussie winners on the tour this week. We'll catch up with them in a great story out of Africa. But Peter's up in Sydney uh, listening to us. Peter, it's uh, great to have you on the show. For you. Very good, thank you. Yeah, look, I'm just curious, just regarding Roger for the French Open, has, he's, has Roger's ranking been protected during his absence? Oh, no doubt, yeah. I mean, everyone's, uh, I think he's currently at eight. So, yeah, the, yeah. the way the ATP rankings are working, uh, Peter, um, it's uh, you're, not, you're not slipping too much uh, during COVID. Right. Unfortunately, there's some guys who probably deserve to be a lot higher than what they are, but... Um, uh, obviously, the guys above them aren't being uh, penalised for uh, for not playing or or not getting uh, you know their, their best results. Anyway, that's a position we're in. I think it's everyone sort of accepted it. But yeah, he's back uh, in Geneva uh, this week. He could play the Aussie Jordan Thompson in the second round. Tomo's going around tonight if he can win his first round match. But yeah, hopefully uh, we get to see a lot more of Roger because it's been uh, too far and few between. 
Yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious. Like, I mean, I assume he's going to be seeded then for the French. Yes. Because I thought if he if he went in there, say 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 if he got a wild card for the French, um, you know, he could be the thing where he might have to play Rafa first round. It'd be yeah. very very unlikely he'd advance very far if he was uh, you know unseated. You know, he would definitely be uh, seated. Good on you, Pete. Uh, thank you for that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Roger Federer will be seated. Uh, John's in Kensington. John, great to have you on the show as always. Right, how are you, mate? Um, mate, I, I got, mate, I got up a lot of the matches to watch Rome. Um, being a champion of the Champions League myself, it was, uh, I always wanted to watch Rome. But, but mate, looking at uh, what I thought, I, I got up to watch Nadal and Finner. You know I'm a big Sinner fan. Yes. Um, mate, I tell you, um, if this boy can get his serve right, he, go, he gave Nadal a lot of trouble, you know. He, he's getting very close, isn't he? And I was, I was very, I was, he was very unlucky. And I thought Berrettini was, he's got a lot of improvement on his backhand to do before he can get to the really top players. But I was um, very surprised about Sonigo. I thought Sonigo showed a lot of heart. Yeah, good performance. Uh, good performance by uh, Sonigo to um, make that semi-final. He won his first ATP Tour event earlier this year. I mean, the Italians, there's so many of them. Magier, who beat Demonor in the first round, loved his work. And uh, what he's, I think, picked up four spots to 86 in the world. I mean, he's better than 86. So they're coming in a big way. Sinner pushes Nadal, 7 5 6 4. I mean, we're going to see a lot more of Yannick Sinner. So uh, this is the grand work you've got to do. Um, you know, to play these guys is a great learning experience. I mean, he's, he's learning and uh, performing on the big stage, uh, Yannick Sinner, to be inside the uh, top 20 at the ripe old age of 19, is an unbelievable feat. Now, two Australians had a victory across uh, the weekend. Victoria's Jeremy Beal, Queenslander Thomas Fancutt, who actually had on the show last year, an ITF 15K event in Tunisia, first time they'd hit the road in 2021, winning a six doubles title as a pair, but their first abroad, and I caught up with them for a chat last night. It's our first time winning overseas, which is uh, pretty special. Done pretty well in Australia. And yeah, just to have a chance of playing tournaments again after after last year's kind of you know debacle, what happened, and just the current climate. So we're pretty pretty stoked to um, just have the chance to compete, and then yeah, winning first tournament back, pretty special for both of us for sure. For me, I've actually done it twice now. So had the 2019 season off uh, due to injury, and then came back 2020. Partnered up with Tom in Mildura and we, we actually uh, won the tournament. The whole COVID situation hit and in 2020 we had off. Uh, yeah, first tournament back again. The boys have done it again. Pretty good. Tom was saying to me yesterday that it was a, it was a, it was a really special one for him. You know, it meant a lot to me as well. It's just really nice to be able to play again, do what we love. The decision to go back out on the road, obviously, since January, February, post the Australian Open, we've seen the Australians sort of depart at different stages and some have made the decision to go a bit later, some earlier. You guys hadn't played, I think, about March uh, last year, I think was the um, 25K event down in, in Geelong. So just tell us about the process to make the call that we're going to go back out and compete again because the tough part for the Australians with the whole quarantine situation here is you go on the road, it's going to be tough to come home, you've got to quarantine for two weeks. There's a decision now, once I go, I go for the entire 
entire year? Yeah, for, for Jeremy and I, I did a lot of planning on how we we're going to go overseas. And we were both in the headspace that, you know, once we go, it's for at least six months because just with the whole climate of, you know, having to quarantine, we come home and just the expense of traveling and whatnot, we're not going to go until we were, you know, financially ready and, you know, mentally ready to commit to a very long stint. If I were to leave Australia and then come back in, say, a month, I wouldn't be able to afford to get back out on the road just because you have to pay for quarantine and then there's a inflated uh, flight price back home. Yeah, it wouldn't be worth traveling for a month two months the decision was made to leave for leave australia once left just stay out on the road for as long as possible so for those listening in who aren't au fait with the behind the scenes the prep the the finances that are needed so for example you've been in tunisia in the last week what do you, what do you have to pay for and what is paid for you or can you give us some sort of background at an itf event we basically pay for everything <laughs> flight accommodation food comes with accommodation here so yeah we're paying for accommodation all-inclusive buffet breakfast lunch dinner the tunisia like turkey kind of setup um where they have tournaments like nearly every week of the year yeah they have the whole inclusive resort style so uh, we did the breakdown the other day i think we have to pay $105 a day for three meals and a bed. And, you know, then you add on like, you know, three to five restrings a week, you know, it adds up. My prize money this week was like 850 bucks and my expenses was like 1200. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a long slog. You can't really look at the, um, the prize money at first on the future store. It's pretty tough. Yeah. No, and exactly. And that's, that, that's pretty evident. I mean, you guys are at you know, a stage of your journey where what you're, you're mid twenties, you've been doing this for a, a little while now. There's been the hiccup with COVID not playing. What, what did the COVID period allow you to do in terms of thinking what I want to achieve out of the sport? If I go back and continue to do this, cause I, I love doing it. That's my passion. It's been my passion for such a, a long time. Did it allow you just to, to rethink how I go about it strategically? What's it going to look like at the end of this whole sort of playing experience? Yeah. For me, it was just more so being able to take care of my body, being able to play week in, week out, but also being smart with uh, how I prepare for matches, how I you know, cool down after matches and all that. Because when I was younger, wouldn't really warm up. I'd just go on court, rock up, have a five-minute hit or whatever. Then I'd play my match and then I'd, that'd be that'd be like I wouldn't cool down, I wouldn't stretch or anything like that. And obviously my body caught up to me. Play pain-free is the major concern for me at the moment, trying to extend my tennis career as long as I can, I guess. Yeah, for me, it was probably the first time since I was kind of 18 that I was actually home for a pretty extended period of time. And in that regards, I got to see my family a lot more, which I kind of really cherished at the time just because um, my grandparents were pretty sick. So I got to see them a lot and just kind of see my friends a lot and train and really focus on, you know, when the tour does resume, I want to be in their peak physical form and, um, you know, have no really excuses of being underdone yep. which i feel like you know, i'm in that kind of space which is exciting i mean we often talk about on our show the small margins of tennis you know that everyone is in this sort of so-called tennis ecosystem can play uh, whether it's top 100 all the way down to players ranked in the top lower part of the top 1000 what, what do you think separates those who can take the step can you identify what it takes well, i think we're actually in the process of finding that out <laughs> um, but i think yeah a, a large bit of it you know 
know, kind of just being around those kind of players who've made breakthroughs. You know, we have a lot of good friends who've made that jump. And I think it's a very much a mental thing, you know, putting in the work, picking a good schedule, staying healthy. Yeah, just kind of toughen out tournaments. And when it starts getting boring and routine and matches are tough, you know, just toughening them out, I think. Like a lot of players that don't really make that push, like have the talent to get up in the ranks, but don't really have the drive, especially when things go against them. As Tom said, it's just having that mental fortitude to just be tough during those those situations. Do you think the reward should be greater at that ITF level? All right, Grothy and I were talking on the show last year that we feel at least the top 300, let, let's say round 300, if we compare it to golf, where if you're in the top 300 and there's even guys who are ranked outside of that who are playing maybe just the Asian tour in golf who are making a really good income out of the sport. And that's sort of been the blight on tennis, hasn't it? That unless you're top 100, it's tough to make a a really good living out of the sport. Where do you think that line should be? Because there is so much talent and depth. A player inside the top 300, you can play at a pretty high level and and players outside of the top 300 as well. What what are your thoughts on just the bigger picture? I I definitely agree. Those players there that are, I'd say, 350 should be a little bit more rewarded. Yeah, it's pretty tough. Like If you're top 250, I guess you're making some livable income, especially if you're in quality for slams. And then, yeah, that kind of... Guys like 250 to 500, you know, they're not scrubs and they can all, you know, they all compete and, you know, they're, yeah, they're fighting for, you know, week to week. Guys on the Challenger Tour, you know, around that, you know, well, now it's like even stronger. It's like inside 400 challenges just because there's less tournaments. They just have to play each week because, you know, they, they need to pick up that check. They need to pick up that free ACOM and then it's not taking rest weeks because, you know, it's expensive. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. It's always kind of been in discussion, the whole, you know, only the top, keep making money whereas the others kind of struggle yeah like you said a lot of people can play all the way you know even to the top thousand you know the top thousand is pretty legit yeah it's tough but yeah i'd say maybe there's more money and you know futures and challenges that would help but they definitely helped with the whole you know free acom and challenges for five days and upping that but yeah futures is um pretty thin you guys have still got you know a lot of your playing career left to try and achieve as, as much as you possibly can but do you think about you know life after staying in tennis uh, and so many players i've come across will use the tennis playing experience to better their career outside of tennis or in tennis away from the court down the track it's almost like investing into your uh, future i mean thomas you come from a you know real rich tennis family background as an example how much do you think sort of down the track or you're very much sort of in the moment just try and make it as, as best you can. Uh, I'd say for me, I'm very much in the moment. But yeah, I, I you know I have seen my family, you know, have great success post tennis. And I come from a family that just lives and breathes it. You know, for me, like, you know, the idea of coaching or whatever after after touring, you know, that's it doesn't like it's not something I fear. Like I don't I'm not scared of doing that. But you know, I obviously, you know, I'm gonna give it my absolute all right now in my current profession. Yeah, I don't want to look back with any regrets, but then I'm also not really scared of the future. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much in the same boat as Tom there. Um, I was pretty much set on once I'm done with tennis or my career anyway, I was just going to go into the coaching business, pass my wisdom and, and experience onto the younger generation and, and help them as much as I can on and off the court, not just as a tennis coach, but as a mentor if I can and, and, and whatnot. But yeah, at, at the moment, staying with my feet up, as, uh, as Kiggs likes to say. 
Do you both just love the challenge of it all? I mean, that individual sport compared to a, a, a team sport, the most accountable to yourself. Do you love sort of that that challenge of trying to, um, you know, just go one-on-one, that sort of gladiatorial type sport that tennis is, where it's just you, the other person. This week you play doubles where you get to play. I think players probably cherish playing in those sort of team events or playing, you know, that doubles or mixed doubles format when the opportunity comes around. But do you love that as far as tennis is concerned compared to team sports? For me, 100%. I love, you know, there's no one else to blame. Like it's just you. Billy and I both, you know, really love I'm watching golf as well and playing golf. And that's kind of the same thing. You know, it's, it's you and you know, it's you versus the world. No one to blame. You know, when you do succeed, I don't know, the reward it kind of feels a bit sweeter in a way. But yeah, when we do play doubles, like I I probably my favorite is playing doubles. You know, when I'm playing with my best, one of my best mates as well. It's good fun on the court. If you are going through, if you're feeling bad on court, pretty easy if you made to kind of lift you up. And then if he's feeling bad, you know, the opposite way around. So I really enjoy playing doubles. I for sure enjoy that gladiatorial fight, one-on-one battle. I do struggle mentally quite a bit though. Um, I actually really do enjoy being on the court and it's just me versus my opponent. On the day, the best man wins, you know. This past tournament, two matches that I played, they were were tough matches and I was actually, I didn't play my best tennis at all. And saying that I I just pushed through mental barriers and was able to come come through in the end. So I was like really proud of myself there. And in saying that, I do really enjoy playing doubles a lot, like that team environment. As Tom said, if your partner's not playing too well, you can sort of pick him up or, you know, vice versa. What do you notice about the Aussies and our makeup compared to players from other nations, just in their their drive, their their mentality, just the way they go about it? Technically, everyone's pretty competent and can play, but just what separates, you reckon, all the different countries in the world competing because this game has got more global by the year? The Aussies are just a jack of all trades, really. Like, you've got some that really compete well. You've got some that are really talented that don't really have that uh, that mental fortitude or, or whatnot. All different playing styles and all different mentalities and all that stuff. Whereas I feel like you'd say people from Japan, they're all, like, robotic, you know, systematic. I'd say people from Europe, they just have that fighting spirit it's like oh yeah he's from spain the way the way he plays or he's from portugal the way he goes about things yeah i'd say the general thing i've heard on tour about australians from other people is that you know pretty emotional and uh usually very talented like we were playing like argentinians this week in doubles and they like ripped like a dale like second point so you know they're pretty pretty kind of emotional on court and i think australians have different styles kind of europeans and stuff just more so because we train on hard court a lot more and the court's usually pretty quick Whereas like if you compare like a Spanish guy to an Australian, it's pretty different just with like kind of grips and all that kind of stuff. How do you sort of map out a, a schedule, if you like, for the next six months? Yeah, for Billy and I, this is like a daily discussion because um, there's just tournaments get released all the time. And, you know, there's always different lists coming out. You know, Billy was going to look at going to, going to Guam for two weeks and that just got cancelled like yesterday. So then that's just a whole calendar shift. But yeah, we're looking to be in Tunisia for like two or three weeks. And then around like the um, the Grand Slam qualities, there's kind of a chance for players at our ranking to maybe have a chance at um, challenges. So we'll probably look, you know, there's options maybe going to Kazakhstan or England or for like two weeks. Once that settles... With our ranking, just the current strength of the tournaments, we'll have to be playing, you know, 15Ks and maybe having a sniff at a few 25Ks. Whether we stay in Europe, you know, whether we go to America, that's kind of, um, you know, a daily discussion pretty much. Yeah, just depends on how we go in the tournaments and, and you know, where, where we stand in the, in the listing. Because we're definitely in the headspace where we want to travel together and, you know, keep playing singles and just keep trying to push a doubles ranking up because, you know, we're 100% 
the level to be top 100 doubles players. And we know that it's our sixth title together. You know, we're only going to keep getting better. Well, I suppose if you look at what uh, Max and Luke have done, the benefit of making that Australian Open final obviously really propelled them and now they can get into those bigger tournaments knowing that they can achieve some great results in, in doubles. Do you draw a little bit of inspiration or as you just said, Thomas, we can we can play at that level, we can get there. Yeah, no, I definitely believe that we can play at that level. There's like no doubt there in my mind that we are definitely at that level. Uh, a matter of time, I guess. You definitely draw inspiration from those two boys because, you know, we've been around them pretty much our whole playing career you know we played against them they definitely if we can draw inspiration from them for sure because they're doing great things really appreciate your time guys congratulations again your sixth title together is a Pairing, first time you've been able to win overseas, certainly here at the first serve. We want to follow every Aussie that's on the road. We do that through our radio show, through our social media. So good luck and we'll definitely keep an eye on the results and uh, hopefully uh, maybe speak down the track. Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah, doing a great job. Great to catch up with Thomas Fancutt and uh, Jeremy uh, Beale, the Aussie winners uh, from the past week. Very interesting. Uh, we were talking off air last night. Uh, they were talking about Max Purcell and Luke Saville and what they've done to get inside the top 50 and men's doubles. They believe that they can have a crack at it in the last the next six months on the road. Their level, uh, they feel, they can get a lot higher in the rankings. So it's a 2021 journey that I will certainly monitor. Plenty more to come after the break here on The First Serve. First Serve Tennis Sunscreen. A quality Australian-made sunscreen to protect those that love their tennis. At sunblessunscreens.com.au and GLG Green Life Group, your open space specialists at glgcorp.com. The first serve, your home of tennis. We've certainly been following the fortunes of 19-year-old Queenslander Olivia Gadecki this year, who has put together some encouraging results, winning her first ITF singles event, 21-9 in singles, a very good doubles record, 16-5, and five, two titles. Her most recent back in April was with my next guest, Sada Nayamana who had BDI pop up next to her name in brackets. Now, I pride myself on my geography, but I saw BDI and I thought, where is that? So Burundi in East Africa, bordered by Rwanda, Tanzania and the Democratic Republic of Congo. She's the only player from her country with a WTA ranking. She's 20 years of age. She had an ITF junior ranking of 12, has a current WTA ranking of 437. She's based at the Moritoglu Academy in Nice in the south of France and our chat will explain how she got there and she has got the same fitness trainer as Alexi Poprin and she's on a mission to conquer the odds. I mean I'm trying to make tennis popular in my country. We have one club in the whole country and that's really tough because like no one knows about tennis in my country. It's like it's the least sport that everyone plays. I don't live there. I I mean, I go there, my parents are there. Everyone from my family lives there, apart from my brother and my sister. Yeah, I go there sometimes for holidays. And it's it's very nice. Like, the country is so small. It's beautiful. But, like, no one knows about tennis. And my father is a coach. That's how I started to play. From there, I moved to the ITF Center in Morocco. I was there for seven years. Then now I'm here. And, yeah, it's just for me to be able to play I have to get out of Burundi because it's like, I mean, people see my results from there. I don't know if it's helping, but like when I get higher in the rankings and people start appreciating more and yeah, they'll be taking their kids to the club and hopefully we'll have more tennis courts there. The ITF is helping them. So my intrigue is if if tennis is so low profile and not many 
young kids are playing tennis. As you said, there are other sports. Uh, I think soccer is, you know, the biggest sport in your country. How does someone like yourself get started to be able to get the opportunity now to, you know, leave your country you know, and go and, and try and forge a career as a professional tennis player? How did it start for you to actually get that opportunity? Yeah, thank you to the ITF. I was in the ITF center in Morocco. I mean, it's part of the ITF and I was getting the grant from the ITF and that's how I was. I was able to play to pay for my tournaments my professional tournaments and in the juniors I was traveling with the ITF teams the ITF found team and yeah it's like the least developed countries players I was traveling with those teams for like forever so yeah that's how I got to play with the top players in the Grand Slams and I saw that I could make it and with my ranking getting better the ITF was giving me grant 25,000 and yeah I started traveling from yeah using that money and I did very good like very fast I used that opportunity and yes my ranking went high so far where do you think you're at now? Everyone develops at a different rate, uh, certainly in, in tennis, and there's no uh, there's no hurry to be certainly higher and higher up the rankings. But do you feel like you're developing in a, in a really good way? Tell us about your game and, and where do you think it's at? I think I'm developing very well and I'm happy with how I'm playing now. I mean, there are a couple of things I have to improve, a lot of things that I have to improve, and I'm working on that. But like when I'm going to tournaments, I'm trying not to think about the results, just to do what I have to do to improve going back to uh, to where it all started so you're a young girl living in your country and do you remember the first time you picked up a tennis racket did you try some other sports uh, when you were much younger can you take us all the way back before you got the opportunity to actually go to Morocco and, and now on to France I was an energetic kid like I had so much energy I mean yeah my dad was a coach my brother was playing so I started at pretty young age I think at two I was going to the club I mean, not to play, it was just to go with my father and I was picking up some balls and I remember I didn't like tennis because my, my dad was so tough on my brother and my sister is just a year older than me and yeah, I was going with her and she and our dad was so tough. So my, my sister stopped and I stopped going to the club. Then I came back when I was eight. That's when I started playing. Then I went to school in Kenya and I did a lot of sports. I played soccer. I did swimming. I did a lot of sports. And what was it about tennis that you thought, no, that that's the sport that I, I really want to try and develop and, and make my sport? I think I didn't have a choice. I had to choose tennis. Because I went to Kenya. I went because of tennis. And in my school... We were just doing other sports for fun, you know, just to compete with other schools and other kids. So it was like I was there for tennis. I mean, other sports were helping me with my like agilities and like different fitness and stuff. So I think that helped me. I mean, I'm very fast, not to brag, but like when I play, I I rely a lot on my physical abilities. And I think that helped me because I did a lot of different things when I was young. To answer your question, I think I didn't have a choice. I mean, when I, I was playing at school, I wasn't really playing high tennis, but it was fun. I read a quote of yours where you said, I want to set an example and I want to make everyone believe that we Africans can make it. The bigger picture of Africa in trying to produce more tennis players. Can you give us some, some insight into that? Because there is some good young talent out there. Yes, they are. And what I meant from that quote is that, like, we don't have same opportunities as, like, the other kids in Europe 
Europe or in America, I mean, I don't know in America, but like in Europe, I mean, the tennis is so strong here. Like, really, the tennis is so strong. And I understand that's why they have so many sponsors. They have so many tournaments. Unlike in Africa, I mean, we have some good players, but it's like we don't have any of those, you know. We don't have lots of tournaments. We don't have sponsors to look, you know, to have opportunities to play in Europe and everything. I mean, I was 12. Thank you to the ITF. But like I was, I mean, there are other good players there, but like, they never went out of out of Africa, you know. I'd say it's unfair, but it's also like, I don't know, I want to set an example. I mean, there are a lot of good players and it still didn't change. So I'm hoping <laughs> it's going to change one day. There is a fair bit of sacrifice, isn't it, to leave your country and just from a, a lifestyle point of view, how has that been for a, you know, a young person in their teens to, you're now 20, uh, so <laughs> not old in, uh, in tennis terms, but uh, certainly well beyond the junior days. Uh, ha- how's that been just for you as a person uh, leaving your country and, and trying to set up a professional uh, sporting career? Yeah, it's a sacrifice. I mean, I love it as well to be out here. I mean, I left my country when I was very young. I left my parents and I speak to them all the time and I keep in contact with my friends and everything. But yeah, it's a sacrifice that I made since I was young and so far I'm loving it really. And I'm able to do that, to be able to inspire other kids in Africa. Give us a, a bit of a feel for the way you play and did you ever you know, look at a, a player on the WTA tour and say, I, I'd like, I like her style, I want to play like that? Or how, how have you developed your own game style? I don't really know. I don't really know. I mean, I like to run a lot on the court and I like to do drop shots and slice and everything. And more like, I don't know. I don't know who I play like on the women's tour. But I mean, yes, I like I like Serena. I like them. But I won't say I play like them, you know. I admire those ladies. and But I mean, I won't say I play like them. It's just how I play. I mean, I'm not powerful. I just, um, yeah, I try to be very consistent and run a lot and make it tough for the opponent, you know, give them a bit of headache. And <laughs> yeah, but that's the great part about tennis, isn't it? Is that there are so many different styles. I mean, we look at Ash Barty and we, uh, we're very fortunate that we have a world number one and we don't take that for granted. And Ash is such a crafty player, but it just goes to show there are many different ways that you can certainly win a, win a tennis match. Yeah, and I think it's good, you know. She plays more like the men and... And I feel like people think that women cannot play like that. But I mean, I understand why she's number one. She has everything, every tool. Sara, what, what are your goals? What are your ambitions? I would like to play top 10. But like, yes, I want to go step by step, like going the right way, improving on my game, not thinking about like too much about winning, like I said earlier. And yes, my biggest goal, like I said, is to try and inspire the kids in Africa and inspire people to help Africans and and just help my family. And, and I love the sport and I want to be able to compete and stay there longer. And apart from loving playing the game, what, what's the major thing tennis has given you as a, as a person? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> Have you seen yourself just develop as a, as a person, you know, leaving home, 
quite young. You're meeting, you know, lots of people from, you know, so many different countries around the world. I mean, Olivia's just an example, you know, playing with her and getting to know her on the tour. Is that, do you think, developed you just as a person? If you put it that way, I think, yeah. I mean, I met a lot of people, different cultures, and it's interesting how we can all be, like, from different places, like, totally different people. But we get along, you know, it's like, it's so nice, like really, it's so nice. Of course, you meet good people and not good people, but it's like, at the end of the day, like you're experiencing something that you don't see at home every day, you know, it's so good. You get to learn other people and other languages. We fly almost like every week and it's exhausting, but it's really fun. And interesting, it's very interesting. Well, I was going to ask you that because I was reading a great story yesterday with uh, Dennis uh, Shapovalov. He's one of my favourites uh, from Canada, and he he spoke about the nomadic lifestyle of a tennis player, where it's so rare to be sleeping in your own bed. You're in and out of hotels, countries. Uh, it's it's a world tour, and you're doing something you love at the same time. Have you sort of got used to that? Yeah, I mean, it's something really we have to adapt. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, like you said, we're loving it. It's not the same. We have to be different places every week, and, yeah, we have to adapt so fast. How, how much are you sort of uh, invested day-to-day sort of seeing what's happening in, in your country? I mean, like a lot of countries in Africa, it's been on a sort of an up-and-down journey, hasn't it? There's uh, you know, a lot that sort of goes on in politics and just uh, the culture and, and the way of life. Um, t- tell us about, you know, growing up in, in Burundi and what it, what it was actually like just as a, a human being. Like when I was young, I mean, my parents were not telling me much and we didn't know anything. But like when I left the country and I was coming back, I was just going to the court and coming back and my mom would be listening to the radio. I mean, I never listened to the radio or watched TV there. Follow the news a lot, people fighting and stuff, but... I think it's it's almost like normal in African countries, like civil wars and stuff. But it's not it's not yeah. something bad. It's like you hear gunshots now and then, but it's it's okay. It's a bit normal. How nice would it be, you know, to be able to have your family be able to join you at some stage and be there as part of your your journey in tennis? I would love that really much. Like really, for my parents to come, my siblings, like just to see how, like to be outside of Burundi and just to see like really I would love that so much and also it's one of my dreams like when I could when I would afford definitely I would fly my parents to come and watch me play. Being at the academy I imagine you've you've hit with obviously some some decent names along the way or or you've had been able to spend time and sit down and have a a conversation with can you share some of those names that you've had uh, a bit of a connection with? Today, you're so lucky. I actually hit with Azarenka this afternoon. I hit with her and Serena was here last week before going to Rome and I was training next to her. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't practicing with her. But yeah, I practiced with Azarenka this afternoon. I think she's the best player I've practiced with so far and... Yeah, it was really nice. She was nice and she's very good. When you train with someone like that who's won, you know, two Grand Slam titles, just the type of ball that's coming back at you and what what do you learn from just that experience? She hits the ball hard. I mean, then I cannot think so much, but also it's like with the experience, she played so many matches in her life. She went through a lot and 
it's just I think it's the experience. I mean, how she's hitting the ball, you can really tell why she's top ten, you know, like and how she behaves on the court and everything. And I mean, I'm already learning from that, just from her attitude, and because it's not only about hitting the ball, also it's where your mind is and stuff. And she was hitting so hard. Well, I can imagine that experience is just absolutely invaluable. Sada, thank you for just sharing a little bit of your story with us, and definitely uh, on a week to week basis, going to follow your uh, results. And, and how you uh, how you go and we uh, we may meet in person one day but uh, all the very best you're on an incredible journey and hopefully you'll make a lot of people back in your country very proud thank you thank you so much Sada Nayamana from uh, Burindi flying the flag for her nation back uh, with plenty more on the first serve first serve tennis sunscreen a quality Australian made sunscreen to protect those that love their tennis at sunblessunscreens.com.au and GLG Greenlife Group, your open space specialists, providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia at glgcorp.com. The first serve, your home of tennis. Well, there has been a departure in the senior management team at Tennis Australia, that of Chief Tennis Officer Matt Dwyer, who came from a cricket background in 2018, described to me as a mutual decision from the man himself, a cultural misalignment, defined as a work environment in which how things get done is not in complete harmony with what needs to be done to execute the business and people's strategies. Read into that what you will. Now, personally, I had pretty good dealings with uh, Matt. What is his legacy? You can email me at thefirstservesen at gmail.com uh, during the week. Still with TA, we had Director of Talent Paul Vassallo on the show last week. Now, I received some correspondence on the back of that interview around the zone squads uh, being implemented uh, right across Australia. Question here, are the new TA zone squads complementing player development, this was sent in, or just replicating it, and competing against local coaches with a discounted program and enticing players under the TA brand away from their private coaching squads. Now, TA have responded, Paul himself, everything we have done since my arrival has been to complement from the National Development Program and now through the zone squads. Our communication to players and parents when we invite them into a zone squad, which players register for themselves, is that they should be discussing that with their private coach about how the zone squad will work with their current program and that it should be used as an add-on, not a replacement program. So across the country, in certainly the next uh, few weeks, uh, squads have been rolled out, will be rolled out. Players are using their zone squad opportunity as an add-on and it's been well received. Uh, another question, uh, where will the Melbourne zone squads be located next term? Who will be taking them? Uh, what age groups are involved? Uh, how many players in each age group, uh, each venue, the player to coach ratio? Will there be uh, consistency across the program or is each squad following its own philosophy. Now, TA have responded, we are working through this. Expressions of interest for coaches wanting to be part of the Zone Squad initiative in Melbourne Metro will be going out next week. Uh, we are looking at a north, south, east and west location. Age groups will range from 11 to 14 years. Player numbers are to be finalised in the coming weeks, but it won't uh, be a large intake. Zone squads will be following a program structure with themes that are worked on in the national development squads in each state on a weekly basis. So there are a couple of answers. We've got a little bit more to bring uh, on that next week. And also we had a chat last week with the Tennis Victoria president, Jackie Peroni, Quite a few questions came in on the back of that, so I'm going to devote a fair bit of the show next week to uh, pulling uh, that apart. Uh, those full interviews with Jeremy Beale, Thomas Van Cut, Sada Nayamana, a great story from Burindi. The full version of those interviews, because a little bit we had to leave out, will be in the podcast, so you can go back and listen to that 
uh, at your heart's content right throughout the week. Keep an eye on our socials, of course, uh, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Aussie's going around tonight. We'll keep an eye on that right throughout the week as we build up to Roland Garris and keep an eye on our website, thefirstserve.com.au, which is uh, updated daily. Plenty of tennis news. The only place you need to log on to. We'll do it again next Monday night. Have a great week and hit them beautifully. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.